The subject that I have determined to use today in this session is not of my own choosing. It was not dictated to me by Sister Barnett, Sister Rogers, or any of your leaders. It came to me as an inspiration from the Holy Ghost. And I proceed with a discussion on the subject with a great deal of fear, trepidation, because it is a subject that is sensitive and can in one way or another directly or indirectly touch every life in this room at some point in your existence. While in the Caribbean last week and in thought and meditation, anticipation of these meetings, I asked the Lord what he would have me speak on here and as I began to write and to study I was shocked when these things started to come to me and I said to the Lord you can't be serious and he said I really am and so I continued, and as I continued to write and to study and to meditate, the impetus of the inspiration gained momentum, and I could tell that I was headed down the right track. Though I will never know who, and I will never know why, there is one thing I am certain of today, and that is the subject has been chosen by the Lord. And while I'm doing it quite blindly, I have confidence that it is the one thing that should be discussed today. My subject is infidelity. And I heard that moan. And am I now correct in saying that there's not a person in here who at one time or another has not been in touch with the subject? Though you may never be guilty, you will be very close to someone who may be. You may be a pastor's wife that's constantly barraged with the challenges of dealing with it. You may be the mother of a daughter that has need of this information. And then tragically enough, in a congregation of this size, the law of averages dictate that there will be some of you who need to hear what I'm going to say today. If I can save one person from going over the falls, it will have been worth my time. 
So for those of you who are so righteous and secure in the spirit and the flesh that have no need of this kind of lecture, I hope you'll make yourself comfortable and be patient with the rest of us because all of us sense that we need information along this line so that we do not fall into a trap. It's an old game, has a new name. Everyone faces problems. Not one of us are perfect. Even as spirit-filled people, we often struggle with questions no one knows about. Sometimes there are things inside of us that others do not see. And things happen that surprise us. Innocent day-to-day -day functions lead to a discovery that you and someone else who is not your husband are compatible in so many ways. You've noticed that there is an aliveness about him that your husband doesn't have. And you kind of like the way that you act and feel when you are around him. Nothing wrong has occurred. But there's something coming alive inside of you. Sooner or later, you'll convince yourself that you've finally discovered what you think true love is all about. Because you haven't had so much fun and laughed as much as you have recently. And then you start to convince yourself that you have a right to be happy, don't you? Anything that feels this good can't be wrong. And then comes that awful conclusion that you'd rather go to hell with your newfound ecstasy than to live a dull, boring life and make it in. Rarely do people ever intend to have an affair. It isn't something that's planned. Nobody takes courses in it. It isn't taught at the community college. Mothers don't include it in their instructions to young girls growing up. It isn't something that you write out in your daily goals or your long-range plans. I am going to have an affair. And the lady knows it's wrong. 
Nobody that's ever had an affair did so without the knowledge that it was wrong. But that doesn't seem to act as a deterrent to stop anything. And she feels guilty about it. But there are so many things that are positive in other areas that the guilt is lost in the shuffle. And it's sort of tricky because she doesn't really know what to do about it. In fact, it's interesting that this man is probably the homeliest man she has ever seen. At first, he even repulsed her. She couldn't stand to be around him. But he talked kindly to her. And he seemed to understand her. And uh, he accepted her and made her feel like a lady. Made her feel that she was important, gave her the emotional support that she wanted so much from her husband. And she forgot what he looked like because she liked what she felt occurring inside of her. And it was so much more than she had had before. And then there is that sister, and I'll call her Frances for a frame of reference, who is in a leadership position in the church. And she's there for many reasons. She was raised in the church. Her mother, her father, her sisters, her brothers, her aunts, her uncles, her cousins, they're all there. They've been pillars in the church for many years. She's highly regarded for her kind way of getting things done without bulldozing over people. She works long hours. She goes way beyond the call of duty. She does many things that in reality should be done by the pastor's wife, but that's another story. The pastor's wife. She has four small children. Her facial lines are drawn from the chores of the household weariness mixed with long lines of people who never seem to stop coming to the parsonage to see her husband. The most important thing that happens in her day is hanging the wash on the line and using the toothbrush to get the speck of dirt out of a crevice. She's an immaculate housekeeper. She's a wonderful mother. She's a mediocre to poor pastor's helper and a dull, homely, and uninteresting companion to this flock's shepherd. It's a good thing somebody takes the responsibility to provide leadership to the many groups and attend to the many details of church functions. Frances does a lot of these things because she feels badly about her pastor's dilemma. He seems to suffer from lack of a helpmeet. And um, he loves his wife and he loves his children. But he feels the pressure of getting things done and um, he knows that his fine wife should be doing a lot of the things, but he understands. He really does. He understands. It's hard to manage four small children and 
run a household that's never normal and at the same time coordinate a wedding and plan for food after a funeral and supervise the spring cleaning of the church and organize the yard sale and teach your ladies group and direct the department of education and breastfeed the newest addition to the family while playing the organ on a Sunday night service. It's tough. But he understands. So Frances was glad to help. She's a great lady. He's a great pastor. They have a great church. It's just a unique set of circumstances that are there. And anyhow, it's good for her to have something to spend her energy on because, well, she's been married for quite a few years now. And uh, uh, her husband's kind of, well, he's nice, but he's kind of dull. Um, lethargic, no charisma, nice, but uninteresting. And uh, at this time of inner loneliness, she seems unavoidably thrown together in church activities with the struggling pastor. And their stories seem like two missing pieces of a puzzle. They fit so perfectly, it seems almost providential, you know, kind of like the will of God. They need each other. They understand each other. She understands him. And, and uh, though he never says it, she gets the feeling that he understands her. And there's really nothing wrong with any of that. But then there's that day in particular when um, she had gone into his office to discuss some aspect of this busy church's activity and the door is closed and Eyes meet and hands touch. And then there's the exhilaration. The spark. A flame. Instantly it happened. Emotions were tumbling out of control. And they had passed the point of no return. Now they rendezvous often. Well, she hasn't cut her hair. She isn't wearing makeup. She's the same as she always was. Nobody knows. He still goes home to his wife, and he loves her, and he loves his kids. Externally, nothing has changed. But she struggles with the feelings of terror and fascination. Her respect for him as a man of God is intensified, strangely enough. She can't take her eyes off of him when he's preaching. Can't be wrong because he preaches with such anointing. And three got the Holy Ghost last night. So God hasn't lifted his spirit. But she's forgetting that God honors His Word anywhere, anytime. He has that responsibility. She works in the church harder than ever before, but the gnawing guilt provides a daily struggle for her to keep her composure.
Both of them know it's wrong, but it happened to you. And you see, when it happens to you, it's different. The usual prayers were prayed for God to take away the feelings. They'd even prayed together. And God hadn't answered, so he must not object. The analogy that I have given to you today is but a speck on the horizon. The increasing incidents of extramarital affairs among spirit-filled people is the one malady among us that is the most dangerous. It's like a time bomb waiting to explode. And you're sitting there horrified that I would say such a thing as that because you thought the Holy Ghost was a cure-all and you had reached home safe and you never had to worry about anything like that ever happening to you. Wrong, my friend. You're still human. You still have emotions. You still crave tenderness and understanding. You still want to be loved. And married or unmarried, those emotions are securely placed in your being. They're there today. And if they are not met, if they are not addressed, you are vulnerable. And if the right person, at the right time, under the right circumstances presents themselves you're going to be making some quick decisions for right or wrong the reasons that are given to support the behavior of infidelity though they're contrary to moral and biblical convictions, are as disturbing as the affair itself. This is not a new problem. Infidelity within the marriage is not a new idea. Premarital affairs are not new. It is not a subject that is being dealt with because it has recently come on the scene. It's not a product of the new morality or sex revolution of the 60s and 70s. Extramarital affairs were with us when the pharaohs ruled Egypt. Regulations regarding extramarital activity and violations of those regulations are recorded in the annals of history. The prophet's voice was heard from Israel's beginning, reckoning her as an adulteress. However, in recent years, a voice that is heard speaking openly courageously against infidelity is tagged as 
one who has an unusual preoccupation with vice sins and the preacher himself becomes suspect because he's heard preaching often against adultery. What was once thought to be good preaching now brings embarrassment to the hearers and congregations would rather he limit himself to generalities about the grace of God than to be bored with sin being named and calling it what it is. Adultery once carried a stigma of guilt and embarrassment. It is now too often excused as an affair a word that sounds mysteriously exciting and fascinating. It's preferred to be known as a relationship, not a sin. It's the main ingredient of every bestseller. It's as common as a cold, and it's considered to be a healthy aspect of a creative marriage. Let me go on record today. Sexual promiscuity has never been established custom in any human society. It has always been considered a negative influence on the family and society since the day time began. In the year 1974, Red Book conducted a survey. On the, of the 100,000 women who responded, 30 of each 100, which is almost one-third, had had affairs with other men. If a woman had had premarital sex, she was more likely to have an affair. 26 of the 30 had premarital sex. Among wives that were 35 to 39 years of age, 38% had been unfaithful. For working wives, the percentage jumped to 47%, almost half. If that was 1974, God help us for 10 years later. According to Red Book, non-religious wives are twice as likely as strongly religious wives to have an affair. 86% of those questioned believed an affair was wrong. What we say, we believe, and how we live are sometimes worlds apart. Because of the liberal mentality towards sex in the world, there is a tendency to relax in the church and to excuse improper behavior as the norm. But I'd like to say today that the church has never set its rules or ethics of behavior from worldly standards and now is no time to start. Because of the climate outside the church, we face an age of dilemma. Our culture is near the point that Rome reached, total saturation. The cesspool is coming over the top. Magazines, books, TV, billboards, now easily accessible video is shouting and whispering it. 
It has become the one prominent factor in all ratings of all programs. The ever-recurring theme in soaps and TV talk shows. We are bombarded from every side, scattershot. Sex, appetite, teasers on everything you see from floor wax to chewing gum. They're telling us, get all you can, you live only once, don't miss out, just like there is no tomorrow. The message is cast at us every way we turn. Fidelity is out, they say. Affairs are in. They say if you don't get satisfaction in your marriage, all you ever expected, dreamed, and fantasized, and it fails to bring you the sensory pleasure and fulfillment you deserve, find it elsewhere. Go have an affair. That's the mentality that's in our society today. And those of you that work on public jobs will remember that you are daily appalled by conversation you have to listen to from the women you work with. They speak of it as commonly as going to the store to buy groceries on a Friday night. It's as easily discussed as going to the laundromat to do your laundry. It's nothing in the world today. It's par for the course. It's the norm. Dr. Albert Ellis, who is a prominent sexology, used a term, his exact phrase was healthy adultery. This liberal attitude has done more than put couples in bed. It has created a social climate that has bred fear and silence, and it has assassinated the marriage vow. Proponents of infidelity would have you believe that because of an attitude change in society, the stigma is gone. They say the pain no longer occurs. It's the accepted thing. The assassination of self-esteem and self-deceit of cheating, they say, has also disappeared. It's not so, my friend. When finders keep, losers still weep. Mothers still mourn, children still cry, and the deserted still feels, feels the agony, and the transgressor's way is still hard. The book said it would be that way. The grass may look greener on the other side, but it's strewn with the bitterness of deception and the skeletal remains of unfulfilled dreams. The transgressor is forced to choose sooner or later between her own wishes and the marriage contract. Her love for her children and oddly enough her love for her husband drives her to protect them from the knowledge of her infidelity. She doesn't want to hurt them. And so in the name of love a good woman becomes a liar and a cheat and a deceiver. Infidelity acts as a cover-up of the real problem. Infidelity is the symptom that says the marriage has gone sour. To 
whatever extent the affair eases the superficial pain of this marriage gone sour, it never provides answers. I underline it. It never provides the answers it is thought to provide. It never gives the resolution to problems that it is thought to do. And as if this isn't enough, infidelity is self-destruction. A once trustworthy, believable individual becomes a cheat and a liar. She lies to her mother. She lies to her children. She lies to her husband and anybody else that gets in her way as she crosses the border to greener pastures. She is then consumed by her own sin of self-destruction. Self-deception is self-destruction. There are no miracle cures for the pain of infidelity. Everybody feels the pain. There is no such thing as an affair without pain. When the vital ingredients of our existence, such as self-esteem, intimacy, and integrity, are destroyed by an affair, its reverberations are felt three and four generations deep. The law of the harvest exudes its poisonous bounty, and everybody suffers. Everybody suffers. It's beyond me how women could ever believe that anything as rotten and putrid as an affair, an infidelity, a violation of the marriage contract, and premarital promiscuity could ever bring good results, could ever produce happiness. It's beyond me how anybody could ever feel, think, or be convinced for one moment that anything good could ever come of it. I stand on this platform today to tell every last one of you, all 428 of you, don't be deceived. Don't be tricked. Don't be led astray. It's a lie. All its promises are empty. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing good that can come from it. And when anything is so dark and so degrading and so detrimental and so damaging, how could you ever let yourself be reduced to get involved in such a horrible aspect of existence just because it feels good? If the grass is greener on the other side, if it is green at all, it's because the gall of bitterness has given it its color. The old timers used to say it didn't happen overnight. I used to wonder about that. 
But I don't suppose anybody really plans to fall into a trap. Which of you would get up in the morning and open the curtains and wash your face and look out and see the sun shining and say, it's a beautiful day, I think I'll go out and commit adultery. But it is true that things do not happen overnight. However, there are ongoing circumstances, unmet needs, unresolved conflicts that simmer on the back burner and under the right or wrong conditions come to a rolling boil and when there are certain factors that exist in a relationship it provides the ground for seeds to be planted the right conditions to grow and the old law that before a plant can produce there must be conditioned soil and planted seed and favorable weather all things being equal as someone has erroneously stated a good marriage that's alive and healthy and not conducive to an affair is no accident Partners who respect each other. Partners who do not emotionally abuse each other. Partners that are alert to trouble spots in a relationship find no reason to go outside the marriage for fulfillment. And although these couples may not be able to sit down and ex exactly describe what they've done right, both will agree to some basic facts where there is a good marriage where there is no infidelity where there is no need to look elsewhere for fulfillment there are some basic things that are in place needs are met emotions are not abused self-respect and dignity are maintained by each and mutual love fires are kept alive while recognizing that every day cannot in reality be conversely a marriage that fails demands reasons nobody just goes out and commits adultery for lack of something better to do in most cases that I've had to deal with, reasons could be found. One would have to be empty-headed to forsake a relationship that's good from both partners' point of view and go out of your way to get involved with somebody else. Linda Wolf stated in her article in Red Book Maintenance 1973, being unfaithful is a symptom, not a syndrome. She said something is wrong in the marriage or their ability to be close to another human being in the same way that a fever is a manifestation of an infection. Extramarital affairs serve as an indicator of marriage malfunction. One of the most difficult things that I have ever had to reckon with 
one of the facts of life that I have had many years in coming to finally accept it as a fact, and that is that a good marriage can go sour. And that's why this lesson truly applies to every one of us. A good marriage can go sour. Because as I said last evening, life comes in phases. Things change. Kids grow up. Get married. The nest is empty. And suddenly two strangers are living in the house together. And you have to either get acquainted and fall in love all over again. Or you set out on a dangerous journey. I have watched good marriages go sour time and again, unfortunately. All the reasons that it should last are present. Yet there is a silent factor that's gnawing away at its foundations. And after several years in excess of 30, being involved in the ministry and being placed in a position of having to counsel in many of these situations, I think that I could summarize by saying immaturity heads the list of the culprits. Sadly enough, one can be 50 years of age and still be immature. There's no fool like an old fool. Second in line is the unfortunate inability to articulate feelings and thereby resolve conflicts. You'd be surprised, and maybe you wouldn't, how difficult most people find it to express themselves and to say what is, in fact, on their minds. It is not a problem unique to anybody. We all fall into that category. As open and verbal as I am, you would think I would not have that problem. But I do not believe there's a woman alive today that can truly find it easy to articulate her feelings at all times. Men are especially bumblers of this particular need. They will seethe for years over pet peeves that they don't have the courage or the words to verbalize. If so many years before the problem erupts, we could find the time, the place, and the courage to sit down and say, Honey, what is there about me that bothers you? And then have the courage to hear it and do something about it. But so many people just seethe and boil 
in emotions that are never verbalized and the inability to articulate feelings. The inability to resolve conflicts, address trouble areas, come to negotiations and, and sit down. If not sit down, stand up. But for God's sake, talk about it and speak the truth, lest you're misunderstood. Many conflicts could be resolved. Granted, it's a tough assignment. Two individuals with diverse backgrounds, upbringings, idiosyncrasies sloshing over from childhood, values that are placed on different things by each, temperaments are not truly known until the pressures are brought to bear, disagreements, difficulties ensue, each campaigns for his cause and the battle lines are drawn, ready, aim, fire. All of this sets the circumstances for disaster eventually. The length of time depends on the people involved. Some people just blow up and get divorced after two years. Others live together 35 years and then blow up and get divorced. Some people are faithful for 20 years, bottle up their feelings, and then suddenly they're convinced that time's running out And decide to do something about it. So the length of time depends on the people. And if the marriage survives the affair, it will be because two people worked at it, not one. Through negotiations, acceptance, forgiveness, tolerance, compromise, adjustment, surrender, discussion must occur. It absolutely must if it's going to live. And when this does not occur, somebody's going to start looking somewhere else, either consciously or subconsciously. Most people are not looking for an affair when they have one. Very few women, very few women realize that they were headed in that direction when it happened. And that's why I feel so strongly impressed to talk about this today. You might be surprised what's lurking in your subconscious emotions today. Most people are not looking for an affair when they have one. They're just hungry for a little attention seeking to be propped up or just to get a feeling of worth because so many men unfortunately do not know how to talk to a woman they talk down to them they put them down and there are many girls that just go day after day after day and never really find the courage to reach down and get their own bootstraps and pick themselves up independently and they wait 
day after day hoping that they'll hear one nice word, one kind word, one compliment from a man, their man, and it doesn't come, and it doesn't come, and it doesn't come. And then somebody says something nice. And it does something to you. And the struggle starts. If you have unmet needs, if you feel the sting of rejection, if you have lonely, faraway emotions tumbling in your bosom, be careful. You are a walking time bomb. Affection-starved women are the most vulnerable. heard the story of a couple that were driving along a deserted road and a bandit approached and demanded money. He ordered the man out of the car to be searched and sure enough, the man had no money so the bandit then ordered the wife out of the car. And so there she was with her hands extended on the hood of the car and the man searched her, found no money ordered her back in the car and she turned around to him and she said, if you'll frisk me again, I'll write you a check. There's another story that said bandits hopped the train, came down the aisle and said, we're going to rob all the men and kiss all the women. One man stood up and said, now wait just a minute. He said, you can have all our money, but you leave our women alone. Nice little old maid, about 40 years old, never been married, stood up and said, Just wait just a minute, sir. Who's robbing this train? <laughs> Affection-starved women are walking time bombs. When that need is met, addressed in the lightest Passing way, something happens in here. Be careful. Neglect is the ruin of any building. A house neglected will fall apart. Homes are no different. To neglect a house is to ensure that it will develop weaknesses over a period of time. And the problems will eventually cause it to fall apart. Benjamin Franklin wrote a little verse that said, Any, a little neglect may breed great mischief. For want of everybody told you they would, but you didn't believe it. And so when they come, you're shocked. It's like you never heard anybody say it. And so you're ready to just quit or go somewhere else and do something else instead of working at a solution. Just remember that even a marriage made in heaven has to be maintained on the earth. It would be quite a feat to maintain an attitude of romance and fuel the fires of passion while disagreeing over the discipline of a bad child or a naughty child or to uh, get into a discussion on who filed up the checkbook. 
And you know, I'm sure he's not going to lay you back and put a kiss on you. I mean, really get romantic when you forgot to uh, deduct the check that you wrote and something bounced at the bank. And yet when those more bland days arrive, some people throw everything overboard and just give up. With their hands in the air, they say it's just not going to work. It's just not going to work. Oh, it isn't. Of course it isn't. If you don't work it, it's not going to work. Uh Uh-uh. Sorry, dear. You can't throw it away that easy. Please, will somebody shout it from the housetop? Marriage is for keeps. You can't just trade it in on a new one or demand a refund. It's not a cure-all for all your problems. It will not annihilate your past. It will illuminate it. Nobody's perfect. You're not. He's not. You've got to give a little. You've got to take a little. Don't throw your baby out with the bathwater. Whoever told you in the first place there would be no problems, no lonely moments. Whoever said your every whim should be catered to. Come on. Get your feelings off your sleeve. Put a little effort toward reality before you compound your problems with an affair. And don't say, not me. You are not affair proof. Many a woman who's as strong as you are has fallen into the tenderness trap. Stop trying to fit your marriage into a format that cannot be possibly real. Posset cannot possibly be real. Using a certain brand of shampoo is not going to make you look like that Clairol girl. Walking into a barn doesn't make you a horse. And getting married isn't going to solve your problems. It is not the magic formula for happy. If you are not a happy person before you married, you're not going to be a happy person after you married. Love like food is a consumable product. It's not a state of mind. It is produced by one, consumed by another. And when the production line breaks down or the recipient rejects the product, the scene is set for an affair. A lady who's looking for someone to give her love to is vulnerable. A man who is starved for love is no less vulnerable. Whoever misinformed you that the ceremony and the beautiful ring would change you, you need to catch up with them and tell them they lied to you because the truth is whatever you were as a person before you married will not be changed by a trip to the altar. I think you better take a look at yourself before you start to take a look around. Don't create more problems for yourself. I know it's a two-way street. I know that all the responsibility does not rest upon you alone. I'm aware of that. In many cases, there would be problems if he were married to a heavenly being because he ain't no angel himself. And if he would just be a family leader, you're saying, if he would just communicate only once, if he would just put the newspaper down and talk to me, if he would just treat me like I'm present in the house and I know I've heard it all, I think I have heard it all. And all of those valid defenses are there. However, let's talk about you in your present state. 
you may be in far more danger than he. When you become more emotionally committed to your dissatisfaction, you have entered the danger zone. Your mind is ruled by your emotion, and if God were to raise your mother from the dead, she couldn't talk you out of it once you get hooked. We have an unbelievable art of finding good reasons to do the things that we do, and adultery is no different. You also have an uncanny ability to arrange things once you've been captured by that emotion. Then you set out to rationalize, to justify. The blinders fall over the eyes. The feelings are numb. The ears are deaf. And now the days are filled with unhealthy thoughts that flatter your ego and urge you on down that path. It would be great if getting saved prevented temptation. But it doesn't. The fields of recent history are strewn with the remains of those who thought that it could never happen to me. Those who felt that they were above or beyond the stabbing pain of choice and a fleeting moment of temptation didn't understand. Great princes have lived out their days with regret eating away at their heart. Men and women who were held in high esteem succumbed to temptation and surprised us all and themselves. Temptation knows no barriers. It does not choose based on race, creed, or color. Temptation is not obstructed by the fact that you hold a position in the church. Whether or not you are the organist, the pastor's secretary, a Sunday school teacher, the pastor's wife, or the pastor himself has absolutely nothing to do with temptation's activity in your emotions. Temptation knows no barriers. The length of time you've served God does not temper its blow when it's hit. I don't care if you've had the Holy Ghost 50 years, you are still vulnerable. No amount of money can lift you out of it. Ships by sea or air cannot carry you away from it. You cannot be immunized against it, nor can you be insured for its damages. You cannot escape its accessibility. An unavoidable reality. You walk through a minefield every day. You are liable to be tempted anytime. Who is tempted? The answer is in two words. Human beings. If you aren't human, then you're safe. Otherwise, watch yourself. If you socialize, if you go on a job, if you attend church, if you buy gas and groceries, it's an inevitable reality that you are subject to be tempted. Not that you'll ever do anything wrong, but the thoughts will occur and you'll be challenged with the decision of what to do with them. Take courage in this truth. Temptation is not sin. Yielding is sin. A tempting thought has no power within itself. And don't ever forget it. Don't think for a moment that because you were tempted by a fleeting thought that you are on the skids and headed down the dirty path. That is not the truth. Temptation is not sin. Yielding is sin. Temptation within itself has no power. It is absolutely powerless. 
powerless. The impetus is gained for temptation when it finds mobilization in your body and mind. Don't ever worry a lot about temptations. As long as you forbid them entrance to your mind and you do not lend yourself to mobilize them, then you are safe. Temptation has no feet. It can't walk. Temptation has no hands. It can't reach. Temptation has no eyes. It can't see. It does not have a sense of touch. It cannot feel. Temptation is a very real thing, but it's totally powerless. It cannot move by itself. You have to give it hands, feet, eyes, and feeling before it can ever do you any harm. And as long as you'll stop short of that, you'll be okay. You'll be all right. You'll be okay. Temptation, success, or failure will be determined by whether or not you give it mobility. The reason that Jesus' temptation was without sin was that he never gave himself to it. He never let it come in. You cannot control many of the factors in your life. There are some things that you cannot change, and we all know this. The family that produced you, your inherited nature, was in place before you arrived. The quality of your genes is out of your control. You cannot control other people, not even your husband. You've discovered that. Your circumstances and environment cannot be altered to your whims and fancy. But there is one kingdom over which you reign supreme, and that is your thoughts. It's not a sin to hear the knock on the door, but God help you if you reach for the knob. When that stranger is welcomed in, the stranger call temptation. When you give him hospitality, when you entertain it tenderly in the secret places of your heart, you have mobilized a powerless temptation. He'll enter your life. He'll make himself at home. He'll help you construct ways and means to get him where he wants to go. He'll take full charge of everything you are and everything you do. And you will become a slave living in your own house. The main diet that keeps temptation alive is fantasy. And a temptation has an uncanny way of making temptation seem possible. When an extramarital affair is entertained as a temptation, the mind begins to live out the fantasy, constructing ways to bring it to pass. By this time, no amount of persuasion will change your course. And that's why it's critical to guard your thoughts when things get unpleasant around your house. Don't answer the door when you hear temptation knock. He's looking for a free ride and you'll pay his way. And then there's the ugly side. My heart bleeds for the victims, the innocent. So many heartbreaking scenes unfold when the inevitable begins to happen. The Bible said a house divided against itself cannot stand. If you do not gather, you scatter. A double-minded man's unstable in all his ways. And the book goes on and on. You cannot build a marriage and tear away at it at the same time. Whatever money and energy is expended in an affair is robbed from your home. 
If the sweet smiles and tender touches invested in an affair were applied to the marriage, the payoff would be much greater and better, I assure you. Strangely enough, prayer is never a serious part of thoughts about infidelity. What do you think God's going to say when you pray, Dear Lord, I seek your will in this affair. Dear God, I'd like to pray about messing around a little bit. Nobody looks for God's warm smile and his stamp of approval when the mind is going wild with fantasy and emotion. Who's kidding who? You may go through the motions, teach, preach, sing, play, anything else necessary to keep the bloodhounds of truth off your track. But you can't fool God. I don't recommend that you try it. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a woman soweth, that shall she also reap. These aspects of a shaky marriage that were distasteful now become ugly ingredients. Things that were aggravations now become contemptuous. The ugly side begins to emerge as an unbelievable, as a believable person becomes transformed into a conniver, a professional liar, telling lies, living lies. And then like peanuts, one leads to another about work hours, about money, about where you were, what you were doing. Truth is discarded like an old coat that you don't need anymore. You lie about where you were and what you're doing. And the children, well, that's another story. That's the other ugly side. And I don't even like to think about what happens there. It's not enough to analyze your emotions, the devastation of an affair, and leave all of us helpless to stop its onslaught. I'm asking today, what in the name of God can we do? This is my most frustrating area of discussion because I can still see the glaze over the eyes of the last person in my office. I had said it all. I had painted the picture. I pulled out the stops, but nothing I said changed anything. I couldn't slow her down. The toddler sitting alongside of her had no effect on her. Her distraught, heartbroken mother did not move her. Her godly father who was aged didn't change her mind. Her quiet-spoken, hard-working husband sat near and wiped tears from his furrowed brow. She had made up her mind. I didn't have the answer. If I did, there'd be 10,000 pastors beating a path to my door to learn how to deal with it. But if I can say something today to keep you off that fatal ride, it will be worth my effort. How can you deal with those fragile moments? How can you stay in a safe range? There are several safeguards that I would like to recommend to you. And if you are human, you need to listen. Don't look around to see how others are doing. There's no way you can know all the facts and make a correct judgment. Don't set your own traps, number three. Many affairs come out of self-made, self-baited traps. We naively grease our own slides and unconsciously set ourselves up for falls. Be careful. Number four, choose your friends carefully. 
Friends who treat infidelity lightly or tell suggestive jokes are enemies to your marriage. If your friend's husband can't keep his hands off of you, find another friend. So many close friends are part of this scene. Loose sex talk breaks down protective walls. That's why Paul wrote so much about conversation. Another trap is your job. Be careful when you respond to the admiration of other men. Is it five or six? At any rate, avoid the magazines and TV entertainment that lowers your inhibitions and causes you to accept with no questions asked behavior that is immoral. The distorted drama of romance, sexuality, infidelity, affairs, and abortions encourage comparisons and dissatisfaction. Unconsciously, you begin wondering why your husband is not like what you see and read. Romance novels can be your worst enemy because you live out your fantasies as you read those novels not realizing that you're fertilizing the ground in which the seed of an affair could be planted if somewhere down the line you get the bright idea that somebody can fit into your picture. And then when that happens, no amount of effort can bring you back. You cannot recall a stone that is thrown. No amount of sorrow can undo the damage the affair does to your marriage. And whatever else may be said about home, it's the bottom line of life. It's the anvil upon which attitudes and conviction are hammered out. It's the place where life's bills come due. The home is the single most influential force in our earthly existence. No price tag can adequately reflect its value. No gauge can measure its ultimate influence for good or ill. It's at home among family members that we come to terms with life. And that's where life makes up its mind. Words cannot describe to you today how I treasure my home, each member of my family, those who live under my roof and Thank God, my children who live next door to me. They stimulate me. They fulfill my deepest longings. And except for my personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I know of nothing that brings me more satisfaction than time spent with my husband Wayne and our kids Tammy, his wife uh, Anthony, and his wife Tammy, and Jeanette, and her husband Steve. The love, the purpose, the joy, and the peace and understanding that I glean from our home defies description. And since all six of us are still in the process of growing and learning, very few things stay the same around our place. And since it's life in the fast lane for us, 
rather than the rocking chair on the back porch, we move at a pretty fast clip. But that doesn't mean we're always on the run. It isn't uncommon for us to spend time discussing issues that are really important or the give and take of discussion and disagreement. And we're continually filing away at the rough edges, the ideas and shaping and molding our minds together. And when we come to those hard questions like whether or not it's going to be... um, pizza supreme or just pepperoni then we probe deeply into how and what and when and where and these are times that cause us to stretch and they require an enormous amount of acceptance when somebody doesn't like pizza just like you like it and tolerance can go a great Length to help you pull it off. But in the Trout family, we place a high premium on mutual respect and self-esteem. We believe that without those ingredients, a lot of stuff floats around without handles. That confusion is bred and fear and insecurity. Those are three words that describe a lot of homes today. The last thing that you should assume is that a family is perfect. None are. All are occasionally frustrated and irritable, even failing to practice what we preach. But every now and then the dust will settle and things that were up for grabs appear to be taking shape and a piece of the puzzle falls into place and that part of life makes up its mind. The highest tribute that can be directed to a mother is that on her wedding day she said I do and she had absolutely no idea what she was getting into and her highest honor is that that you see when you see her children because a family is a perpetual relay of truth it's a place where principles are hammered out and honed on the very anvil of everyday living where character traits are sculptured under the watchful eyes of moms and dads and where steel-strong fibers are woven into the fabric of inner constitution. The relay is the place that's in the home, and it's a race with a hundred batons. Determination, honesty, responsibility, thoughtfulness, confidentiality, punctuality, Self-control, patience, purity, compassion, diligence. And this race is not a sprint. It's a marathon. There are no 50-yard dashes. There are no easy one, two, threes in character building. The relay requires... Right timing, smooth handoffs, practiced around the track hour after hour, day after day when nobody's looking. This practice track is the home, right inside your own front door. The home is God's built-in training facility. And that's why he urged dads and moms in Moses' day to relay the truth. Deuteronomy 6, 7, And you shall teach them diligently to your sons, 
And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. That's the plan. The inimitable strategy which makes winners out of runners. Relay the truth diligently, constantly, consistently. And one final warning. If this is your goal, you'll have to outdistance two relentless foes. And that's slow starts and sloppy handoffs. Keep in mind, moms, that you don't have forever. You'll be surprised how quickly they grow up. Negligence will catch you from behind and beat you in the stretch if you let up. And don't think your kids will let you get away with faking it either. A salesman knocked on the door of a rundown apartment in a low-rent district. The mother didn't want to talk to the guy, so she sent her little boy to tell him that she couldn't come to the door because she was in the bathtub. So the little fella answered the door, and he said to the man, We ain't got no bathtub, but my mom told me to tell you she's in it. <laughs> Further, it won't, catch you, it won't work for you to play catch-up by dumping truckloads of truth once or twice a year. You must be consistent. You can't have the loose, tight strategy. It has to be consistent. Good parenting is consistency. Stay at it day and night. Make sure your handoffs are crisp and sharp. Throughout this race against time, relays are won or lost at that critical moment when a young hand reaches back and gropes for the baton because someday when the kids are grown and things are a lot different the garage won't be full of bikes and electric train tracks on plywood so horses surrounded by chunks of two befores and nails and hammers and saws unfinished experimental projects and the rabbit cage the treehouse that stands is a stark reminder of an era that passed You'll be able to park both cars neatly in the garage and never again stumble over skateboards, a pile of papers for the school paper drive, or a rabbit food. Someday when the kids are grown, the kitchen will be incredibly neat. The sink won't have sticky dishes. The doorknob won't have jelly and peanut butter on it. The disposal won't be jammed with paper clips and rubber bands. And the refrigerator will not be filled with nine bottles of milk. The water jar will not be put back empty. And the ice trays will not be left out overnight. The blender won't stand for six hours coated with midnight milkshake. And the honey will stay inside the jar. Someday you'll actually have time to get dressed Leisurely time to do your nails or take a bath without the kids beating on the door saying that the cat just ate the canary. <laughs> Someday when the kids are grown, you'll be able to use the telephone without discovering a couple lovebirds on the other line. That telephone will actually sit there and not ring. And here you thought all this time it was growing from your teenager's ear. The telephone will not have mayonnaise or corn chip crumbs or toothpicks stuck in those little holes. 
Someday you'll be able to see through the car windows. There'll be no fingerprints, no tongue licks, sneaker prints, or dog tracks. The back seat will not be a disaster area. You won't have to sit on jacks and crayons anymore. And the gas tank will not be somewhere between empty and fumes. Someday, conversations will return to normal, you know, just plain old American talk. And gross will not punctuate every sentence seven times. Yuck will not be heard. Hurry up, I gotta go will not be heard with banging fist on the bathroom door. It's my turn will not call for referees. A magazine article can be read without interruption. Someday things are going to be a lot different. One by one, they'll leave the nest. The place will begin to resemble order. The crackling of the fireplace will echo through the hallway. The phone will be strangely quiet. The house will be calm and always clean and empty and filled with memories and loneliness and uh, you won't like it. And you'll make coffee thinking surely he'll come over and bring the grandkids. And you'll spend your time looking back to yesterday thinking about all of these things. Could it be that the Apostle Paul had all this in mind when he wrote, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in? Maybe so. But then again, chances are good Paul never had jelly and peanut butter on the doorknob or sneaker prints on the car window. <laughs>